0: RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. All right, now we're going to talk about the very future of medicine. And uh, why is that? It's about the Future of Medicine conference. And that's coming up this weekend. Now, Professor Grant Schofield, you may remember Peter Williams interviewing Professor Schofield within the last month or so. It wasn't that long ago, and I'm sure you're interested in health and medicine that you are aware of him Professor Grant Schofield founder of the Future of Medicine Movement Chief Science Officer at Precure Professor of Public Health and Director of the Human Potential Center Auckland University of Technology former Chief Scientific Advisor to New Zealand's Ministry of Education and so it goes on I could be here all day doing the intro uh he joins us now Professor Grant Schofield welcome to RCR Breakfast nice to have you yeah thanks for having me on okay the title of the conference suggests that we're not quite there yet on the on the journey towards I don't know some ideal state of medicine.
1: Yeah, I suppose the place to start with that is to think about you know, what health even means. Uh, is it just you know not having diseases, or when you get diseases, being able to fix them up? Um, you know, certainly those are useful things. Um, is it the be able to reach some sort of uh, potential, whatever that means, um, or the definition I like of health is being able to successfully negotiate uh, the inevitable ups and downs of life. And you know, on that definition, uh, you know, for a wealthy country, we seem to be a long way from having a system that can help with that. And, and I'll give you a couple of examples that really stick in my mind. And I, you know, I think we should be talking about these more. Um, one is uh, around mental health, and we hear a lot about mental health, but just to put it in you know, stark reality, we actually measure um, with quite a robust way of doing it in the New Zealand Health Survey, which costs many millions of dollars to conduct, uh, uh, psychological distress. And it's interesting, when we started doing that in 2011, our 16 to 24 year old group, about um, at any one time, about uh, 5.6% were suffering from what we call severe psychological distress. You know, they're not really doing well. It's not mental illness, but they're just not doing well in life. They're having trouble coping. Uh, and it's steadily and consistently gone up over the last decade. So when it was last measured in 2021, uh, we're at almost a quarter. So 24.5% uh, were suffering severe psychological distress. I mean, as a um, someone who's active in the health field, I was interested in mental health and as a parent of kids that age um, and as a member of society at large that seems to me that we're not doing the right thing so so that's that's you know one big thing and then the second thing is it's like well what is the you know cause of people turning up to the doctor and you know what's the we call it, in public health we call it the burden of disease and you know and you know how big is it and one way the way i like to think about it well this five point Something million people in New Zealand, um, so there's about five million years of life to be had each year. And you know how, how much of that is is affected by poor health? And the answer is about a million years a year for New Zealanders is lost due to poor health. They're not functioning at the best. They're they're doing badly. Um, and you can discount things down the way economists do, but and, and that's debatable. But you know, from from that million years, how much of that is? You know, how does that divide itself up? Well, you know, people get in car accidents and fall off ladders and injure themselves on sport fields and that sort of thing. That's about 10%. The 90% is chronic disease, diabetes, heart disease, poor mental health, uh, cancer, uh, stroke, those neurological diseases like Alzheimer's, um, the bulk of which are preventable in the first place. And if you wanted to think about a, a future of medicine, it, it would be one it wasn't the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff, but was one that Put the fence at the top, or had something constructive to do about that. And and the bizarre thing in in this country, which is similar to many other countries to be fair, is we spend twenty eight billion dollars on health. It's one of our biggest uh, budget items from the, uh, the government. Um, less than one percent goes into anything that resembles uh, prevention uh, or stopping people getting sick in the first place, or helping them thrive.
0: Okay, so um, what's the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different uh, result? That kind of feels like how
1: things go. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons for that is we've become very orientated towards a pill for all ills, so very dominated by the pharmaceutical industry. Um, Arguably, there's some quite good reasons the way we went down that, and that is that when Louis Pasteur uh, discovered microbes and penicillin and that it could kill pathogenic bacteria, um, his idea of germ theory, and I remember at the same time, um, many people will be familiar with it, that there was a contemporary to Pasteur called Louis uh, to, called Anton Beauchamp, and Beauchamp argued, actually, uh, we shouldn't just be taking into account the fact that there's pathogenic bacteria, but... Um, we should take into account the terrain of the organism because some organisms, including humans, they get exposed to the exact same thing. And not only do they not do badly, they end up thriving as a result of that. So this sort of terrain theory versus uh, germ theory got pitted out. And Pasteur really won that. And you could argue that medicine now is at the bitter end of germ theory, that this pill for NEL is where we're at. And and. It's, it's very easy in medicine. People go, oh, yeah, that's a conspiracy theory. You know, you've heard all this sort of stuff around, you know, the pharmaceutical companies are conspiring and that sort of stuff. Well, um, I'm here to tell you it's not a theory um, that, that the big drug companies, Merck, Pfizer, uh, and so on, all have been um, indicted and then convicted of actual conspiracy um, and fined many billions of dollars over the last um Several decades, and you can just watch some of these Netflix things around um, you know, the opioid crisis and stuff, and see how far that's gone. People will have various views around COVID and and the response to that, but uh, you know the modern health system with the twelve minute doctor appointment is really only set up to write a prescription, uh, yeah. take this, um, and will alleviate some symptoms, and it it never addresses particularly the cause. Um, of all health, ill health or um, the determinants of doing well in life,
0: the consumers of that health system though uh, have a lot of power, and what they want, I would imagine, ultimately shapes the service that is delivered. Seems to me that uh, at some point, the convenience of the germ theory way of doing things—that is, you know, prescription pill, symptoms are relieved, and you kind of kick on it's like an outsourcing, a personal outsourcing Mm. or an outsourcing of your personal health responsibility. Let's put it like that. And we live in an age of convenience and where people kind of want to be looked after in that way. The point I'm making is, you know, if that's what people want, even if it's not working, I mean, that's what they're going to get.
1: Yeah. Um, And I think it goes even further than that. I mean, people don't, turn up to the doctor going, hey, I'm doing really well. I just want to keep doing well. How's it going to go? So the way that a a case presents itself in the ED or primary care is never a well person. The system never sees well people. So it's only ever has a demand of sick people. So it's sort of, there is a, a, I agree with what you're saying, but there's a sort of two-way process going there. The system begets sick people turning up. Well,
0: uh, well, and I guess saying to someone, it's a lot harder for someone to accept Um, that uh, really, okay, I could write you this prescription, you could have this pill, but really what you need to do is you need to change your diet, you need Mm -hmm. to exercise. Mm -hmm. If you're drinking too much, you need to stop that. If you're smoking, you shouldn't do that. Vaping, I don't know what you think about that. You might have a comment on that, whatever. These are the things you need to do. And until you do those things, I'm only ever going to be relieving your symptoms. But here's the thing, it's too much effort. It's too much effort for most people.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. There's a counter to that as well. And in and, and my experience of you know, health coaching as a former psychologist, as being someone in um, this field for my whole life, it's really interesting when I've never met a person that when you sit down and ask them about what their goals in life are and what they aspire to, that uh, uh, typically uh, family and connections and health are always in the top three i haven't met a person where their own health hasn't been in the top three um right. and most people do have a degree of insight that uh exactly what you mentioned uh smoking alcohol sleep connections diet exercise uh, and we'll definitely talk about vaping a bit in a bit paul uh, uh crucial determinants of that uh but have we set up a world that helps them do that uh, probably not uh uh Food's expensive, and the cheapest food is you know, basically pathogenic. Uh, we we spend most of our time sitting on our butts, either in our jobs or commuting or um, in uh, inactive leisure. Uh, we're on screens. Um, alcohols become pretty common, so so it does. There there is a sort of systemic issue as well.
0: Yeah, because you know during the COVID thing as an example of that many people have said well okay forget the pushing of the vaccines We, we all know about that but there were alternatives um even down to the level of lose some bloody weight yeah because that's a comorbidity um you know take some um be eat nutritional food just do some basic things but none of that was ever broached ever
1: yeah, and I and there's I don't no agree downside
0: with... to to saying any of that, uh, but 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 we're not allowed to fat shame either. So I guess what I'm getting to is, is you you know I guess politicians and and the power elite or layer don't want to try and push people too far because that might be be too much and they might lose support or fa- favorability. You know.
1: Yeah, and I, COVID's a massive cautionary tale about when I first heard about COVID. Uh, we wouldn't. No one really knew much about it, and then we started to understand that the major risk for doing badly was extensively metabolic. So if you're in good shape, uh, you know, particularly if you've got enough sunlight and your vitamin D levels were high, uh, you were fit um, and your diet and your healthy weight, and you didn't have diabetes, and you know, extensively the risk was you know, virtually nothing. Uh, and I got really excited about that because you know, I, I've been in this field for 25 years, Paul. Um, and you know, I, I regret to say on my watch, um, New Zealand's gone from being the most active country in the OECD to in the bottom third. Uh, we're now the third fattest country of the OECD countries in the world and catching Mexico and uh, United States. Uh, we're coming after them. Uh, and, and our sleep's got worse, uh, our addictions have got worse, our mental health has got way worse. So I feel quite despondent about you know what I've been able to achieve. Um, but I saw COVID as a huge opportunity um, for us to concentrate on what really mattered about health. But as you say, we didn't, uh, not only if we didn't want to do that, we put people inside, um, made them lonely, um, cut them out of their jobs um, and, and um, and mandated um, in a way that we haven't worked before in health. Health has always been a uh, decisions have been personal uh, and we just, Missed that opportunity, so it's a massive cautionary tale. And I hope the next time one of these things happen, um, there will be more viruses, and some of them might even be um, very deadly. Um, that we can start to um, really drill down on those those important things, as you said. I want to ask you very
0: shortly what needs to change and why. But again, that 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 maybe is an example of what I was, you know, putting to you before, and that is that um, the support for the vaccination treatment. Was so overwhelming, which kind of suggests again that people were not prepared to take personal responsibility for their own health. They they were having it outsourced. Um, They um, uh, put in the frame of the provider of that as some benign sort of I don't know mother saviour figure (laughs) um, here to save us, completely depowering at a at a personal level. It, It says a lot about maybe the national psyche, which maybe speaks to what you're saying about that huge jump in mental health. I don't know. There's something where people are are kind of shirking basic responsibilities and to look after themselves is, I guess, what I'm I'm feeling.
1: I sort of feel that um, we have been okay at this in New Zealand in the past, and uh, that country that I knew was one that had some aspiration individually um, and collectively, um, and that goes a long way towards being able to take responsibility for your health. When you're on a mission to achieve something in life and make the world a better place um for yourself and other humans, then the the state of staying healthy becomes almost a, a normal part of that because you need to do that to achieve your mission. And I I I'm you know I'm I know we're in a bit of a dark place at the moment and people talk about you know, wanting to go to Australia and move there. I, I'm not saying that. I'm saying hey guys, you know, we're we're in this together. Um New Zealand is us. Um and we can actually start to become an aspirational country again. And I think that'll go a long way towards you know, moving investment in health, moving us as a people.
0: And i just add to that, people who were expressing confidence in their ability to manage their own health in that situation were portrayed as bonkers. Right? <laughs> Even natural immunity was like a sin to talk about. Anyway, just <laughs> saying. All right, so I want to talk about the state of the health workforce shortly because I think those things are connected. But but first up, so what needs to change, and and once we've got to that, what what are the reasons for that? And I'm picking, you know, to improve health, but but uh, some specific uh, change action points that are needed from you.
1: Yeah, so at a policy level, I would I'd be bold enough to invest ten percent allocated of our health budget into actual prevention. And at the moment, things like bowel screening and cervical screening are called prevention. They're not prevention. They're catching disease early. So let's just call them that. But actual prevention. um, And we used to do that quite well. um, And we used to have quite good agencies. We actually even have a thing called the Health Promotion Agency, but it's completely ineffective because its investment is around $40 million a year, which in the context of what's actually needed in terms of diet, exercise, uh, devices, vaping, alcohol is just nothing. So, so so, I'd reallocate spending. Uh, we need to think about our health workforce. The reality is that our health workforce is changing quite rapidly, and I don't know if people are quite aware of this, but what we can expect in g- uh, general practices in 15 years is that half of our current GPs will have gone, and we have very little ability to replace them. And that'll be true of our practice nurses as well. So general practice as we know it now... Uh, won't exist. Those GPs would have retired because they're aging. They would have become burnt out and left. Thirty uh, you percent know, of GPs and fifty percent of practice nurses say that they would leave if they could. Uh, and wow, that's, that's
0: yeah. huge, actually. Yeah.
1: So, uh, and it's a very dissatisfying job because of the 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 short, disease-focused workload with a pill for every ill. Is you know, and and I don't know some anyone who's gone into general practice that wasn't a, a deeply empathetic, caring, uh, compassionate person who cared and wanted to make a difference to people's health, and you can imagine the, the you know irony of what people get caught up in now, which is not that. So, so we're going to have to do something in that model, um, and you know the only thing would be if you wanted to keep doing the same thing as chucking more money at getting more overseas trained doctors, which is you know where we're probably heading. Um, but you know, New Zealand actually has become a little bit more focused on other models of how we do this. And this is, is GPs working with upskilled community health workers who are trained in uh, diet, exercise and fitness, sleep, uh, all those sorts of lifestyle behaviour things. And, and we call those health coaches. And so they'll actually take some time to talk to someone about what's, what's important to them and help empower them to make start taking some responsibility, and making some changes and helping them be accountable. Um, and then the GP can now work at the top of their scope. You know, in many cases taking people off their medicines, uh, and you know what a what a, and, and there's there's practitioners in New Zealand, Dr. Glenn Davies, Marcus Hawkins, and Howard Olivia Curry in Christchurch. Um, Glenn even won GP of the Year for this work. So it's not unknown, um, but to make any systemic change in that has been much more difficult.
0: Yeah, is that because well uh, the is a vest well vested interest i guess there's you know the historical interest just the way things have been operating but you know um i've talked to glenn davies a lot obviously mm. and uh you know his uh, reversal of type 2 diabetes is quite incredible when you think about it um, it's probably not incredible to him because he understands it completely and it makes perfect sense but we've got you know um big big uh, centers of dialysis machines Everywhere, uh, people, are, you know, I think eighty-three percent of people are pre-diabetic condition in terms of insulin resistance, etc. Mm-hmm. This seems to be an easy to tackle thing. You'd think it'd be a no-brainer. You could put many people on on this
1: path right now, but it doesn't seem to happen. It's an astonishing thing, Paul. I mean, Glenn Davis is a hero in New Zealand. Um, you know, we should knight him or whatever we want. Probably wouldn't want that, but they. Reality that half the people you can treat who have diabetes, you can reverse that condition, get them off their medicines, and give them, uh, you know, 10 extra years of of good quality life, save the country millions and millions and millions of dollars, you know, return four to 10 to one on investment. Uh, and, you know, we've done our own work with Glenn and um, beyond Glenn. We just finished a, a trial with 120 odd patients in. Uh, through ProCare in uh, you know pretty high-needs area, Papi, Papataui, uh, Manukau, Mangere. Um, you know, again, similar results, but to convert that into anything in, in the uh, juggernaut that is a New Zealand health system and uh, the, the Ministry of Health and those sorts of things seems to be near impossible. So they're kind of wedded
0: to the, again, the sort of the machinery and the, you know, you can come in sort of half dead... <laughs> you know, as long as you can still sort of walk and plug into the machine, then we, we kind of feel like we're doing our job for you. It sort of feels a bit like that. Um, you're talking about mental health before, because that seems like a huge, massive jump. What did you say? Sort of single figure, four or five percent of that um, age group population demographic you mentioned. I think it's almost a quarter now. Is that mm-hmm. just remind us
1: that that's what you said, right? Yeah. So psychological distress, severe psychological distress is really a quarter of our young people. Um, yeah. And 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 I've got a, quite a few things to say about that. If you would indulge me on, no, that. please. Uh, um,
0: it, 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 I think it's very concerning.
1: Yeah, it's so, so, really so, so, worrying. Yeah. So first of all, I don't want to sort of undermine the good work that I think people, some real heroes in New Zealand mental health have done. But I think they've done their job, and we need to move on. So John Coeun's, you know, raising and destigmatizing mental health issues. We've done a really good job of that. Um, and then Mike King with his work around uh, de uh, you know, funding counselling and those things has been awesome and is Gumboot Friday. They're both heroes of our society. Uh, but what we do need to do now is attack the, the uh, both the supply and demand side. So, you know, how come we're getting so many more people with this? And I I think the clues are really, in many ways, it's surprising we're not worse when you look at what happens when you vape, when you use social media, uh, when you um, eat junk food. And that this whole dopamine pathway in the brain, um, let me just take a step back and just talk to the people about that because I think it's, if you, especially if you're a parent or a young person, this is a really important thing to understand. I think we understand it best from smoking. You start smoking, nicotine raises this neurotransmitter dopamine. Some people call it pleasure. I call it motivation. But you're, you're raised, you're good to go, you're sharp. It's a good feeling. Uh, but it raises it to levels that biologically... Aren't plausible for humans living the way humans have have lived as hunter gatherers, uh, and, and what the brain adjusts to that, so it starts to down regulate and down regulate, and you know, by the end of it, when you're addicted to nicotine through cigarette smoking, um, your dopamine is way below baseline, um, and that's the opposite of motivation and feeling good. It's it's more like pain, uh, and so you smoke to get rid of the pain, and you just get back to normal baseline levels, which which is the exact opposite of what it promised. But, but the, the side effect of that is you now have what we call ahedonia, which is really the hallmark of, of mental illness, which is things that would normally raise your dopamine and give you pleasure, pat your dog, kiss your wife, uh, you know, eat something, have sex, go and do some sports, read a book. Don't even raise it back to baseline. So they really have no effect on you feeling good at all. And people start not to do those things and disengage. And that's that's depression. Uh, and you start to look at t- our teenagers and, and what does that. Well, vaping does exactly that, of course, through the exact same mechanism of smoking, except you can do more of it. Um, gaming does exactly that. And if, if people who are parents and have got, I've got a um, youngster who's 14, um, if you leave him to his own devices on gaming and it raises dopamine way up and he gets that adjustment, all of a sudden he's not interested in sports. He'll only eat junk food if at all. Um, he's grumpy. He's not happy. He's not happy about doing schoolwork. There's no pleasure from any of those things. Um, you get him off that, um, put him on a dopamine fast, and he's a completely different kid. So gaming, um, social media use and mobile use, it, it's well known and there's good studies that the more you use social media, the lower your basal levels of dopamine are. So social media does the exact opposite of what it promises. Uh, it, it makes you less happy, Um in the long run, you know, in many ways when you start to think about the world that our young people live in, it's surprising their mental health isn't worse than it is. Uh, so, so that's a really um, important thing. So, if I was if I was in charge of policy around mental health, I would invest a bit, extra billion dollars a year for the next three years, and I'd do it across three categories. There'd be a billion dollars going on prevention. Uh, we've got it talk about these things. We've got to make it known about what vaping does. We need to legislate about vaping. Uh, We need to talk about gaming. We need to raise the physiology and the realities of what these things do to our brains. I would spend another billion dollars over the next three years on getting an actual mental health workforce. I mean, this is the great irony of COVID, Paul. Oh, we'll collapse the health system. It won't be able to cope. In mental health, we don't have a mental health system. That the worst three percent of mental health can go to inpatient. If you want to see a psychologist, even in the public health system now in Auckland, you will be waiting several months. Uh, private are expensive, and and you may be waiting similar amounts of times because their their books back out. We can we can do better. We can have, we can we can all be literate in mental health uh, and be mental health coaches and peer supporters. And and the tools aren't just listening. That might be useful, but but the most effective treatments for both prevention and treatment are things like exercise, especially outdoors, getting in the sun. These aren't just random ideas. These are clinical trials pitted against the best medicines and they're way more effective. Mm. Uh, and the last billion, I think we need to think about carefully. And I don't know if people have had this experience in mental health. I certainly have. Um, a young woman I was working with was uh over a series of years, become medicated. She's on six different medications, some of which cause suicidal thoughts and and uh, and lack of sleep. And they try and do more medicines to stop those things, and you know, you end up in a terrible mess. And she's suicidal. And in the end, I rang the crisis line, and and this is what they said to me: They said, "Is she going to kill herself right now?" It's like, well, not at this moment. She's <laughs> suicidal, right and here. they go, well, "Well, have you asked her how she's feeling?" And as a human in society. You're just like, how could you be so, of course I have you idiot. And they're like, oh, well, if she gets any worse, just ring the police. Now, what sort of rich modern society is one where in these conditions, we think it's okay to call the police on your daughter um, or your niece or your mother or your father or your brother or your cousin? Um, How could we behave like that? And, And randomly, we've got volunteer sort of models of how this could work. One of my favourites is a place in Taranaki called the Taranaki Retreat. And, you know, this, someone's bought some land and they've set it up and it's respite care when things get really tough and it's caring. Yeah, it's we, we actually
0: interviewed the woman who who set that up.
1: Yeah, well, I, I mean, they're heroes, these people. But And, and but, she did that off her own back. Yeah, well, let's invest that. a billion dollars in that, for God's sake. Yeah. Yet we'll go and buy, we'll go and invest yeah, you know, billions of dollars in, in antidepressants, which hardly work and cause you know quite severe side effects.
0: Yeah, okay. I mean, that was that's so insensitive that that advice. I mean, well, presumably, are they trained to? Are these people do uh, the, the people who operate these helplines? They have any actual knowledge, or are these just like glorified call center
1: people? Yeah, well, go to course, ask? yeah, to connect people, but we. I mean the, the I mean it's still probably not their fault but no well we don't have a system I mean we we, we spent we spent 60 billion dollars to not let the health system be overwhelmed yet we don't even have one in mental health uh, what a what you know, how are we so uh, how, how we miss that but, I, mean, well, conspir-
0: they, I always <laughs> say this we spend 500 million on rat tests that have now expired. So it's not as if you can make an argument that you know we're tied for money when you're prepared to do that. So that would have been well invested in what you're talking about. It's not close to the you know three or four billion, but it goes a long way. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So this conference, who's attending, and and I mean, I guess the goal is to is to make something happen. Can obviously you think this can contribute or keep the. The momentum, or 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 keep the energy in what you're talking about here.
1: Yeah, well, one one thing I've noticed in New Zealand medicine is there's actually some heroes that that just completely fly under the radar. Glenn Davies is one that you've interviewed. Um, a, another one is a Waikato neurologist called uh, Matthew Phillips, Doctor Matthew Phillips, um, who over and above his you know sixty hour a week, you know on call, work. Um, has managed to conduct his own you know, scientific studies and he does these very careful randomised trials and he's done this in uh, Alzheimer's, he's done this in Parkinson's disease and at the moment he's finishing a trial in uh, glioblastin or multiform, which is the most deadly form of brain cancer. Um, and in all of those, he's managed to the for the first time, because the drugs have been so disappointing, to actually reverse those conditions, to you know, reverse... Uh, some of the aspects of Alzheimer's to reverse some of the aspects of Parkinson's disease and he's done that through fasting um, and ketogenic diets um, quite well applied I you know we've got these heroes I've got Professor Julia Ruckledge, who's a professor of psychology at the University of Canterbury who's well known for her work with uh, high dose multivitamins as a very effective medicine for depression for ADHD for a range of psychiatric uh, illnesses with my Point is, we've got Glenn Davies. We've got we've got heroes in our system in this country um, who just keep trudging away, achieving mar- remarkable results, and seem to have no time to get cut through. Because of course they're doing, they're dedicated to a life of change, but they're not. They fall outside the mainstream because of that work the, medicine doesn't want to know about. it. medicine's always been difficult to change. Um, and when you challenge the status quo, they don't know you. Um, and I think we can do better in the modern world to not just, you know, if you think back in history when James Lead discovered that, you know, that fruits cured scurvy on ships and when uh, Semmelweis discovered that washing hands stopped babies dying at birth um, because the, you know, the French physicians had come from the morgue. Um, none of this change happened to decades after they died. Um, and I just don't want to wait that long in this country.
0: Yeah. If you're a, okay, we've got an election coming up. There are health spokespeople for the major parties. Um, one of, one of those is going to probably end up being a minister of health. You would think if you were passionate about being a minister of health in a government of New Zealand, you would want to be aware of all those names that you have just, you know, told us, and you would want to, you would want them in your office on day one. And you want to know everything that they knew,
1: wouldn't you? That would be that would be a ministerial uh, engagement that we haven't seen. But you're right, Paul. I mean, gosh, if I was doing that job, uh, that's, otherwise that's you're not doing your job,
0: Grant. You're no, just not no. doing your job.
1: Yeah, but but they bark everyone else barks very hard, Paul. You'll have you know, the GPs understand that their job sucks and they won't have a workforce, but they just want more money and more stuff, and and I can understand that, but you know, doing more of the same but with more resources is not going yeah, to but work. But if you're
0: savvy in life, and you've haven't come down in the last shower, you know that there are all sorts of interest groups that are always going to promote themselves. Mm. You need to know the landscape, the way the the lie of the land, and you need to be. Otherwise, I guess what I'm saying is is maybe we're let down so much by just the very blinkered thinking of people who promote themselves as a solution. Mm. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. So you'd want to see that. Yeah. You know, okay. Maybe the next health
1: minister's listening.
0: Hey, why don't you think of that? Right. Yeah.
1: yeah. And, and, and you know, New Zealand has an effort of grassroots experimentation and ingenuity, you know, to, to have, Treatments that can effectively send Alzheimer's backwards—you know, not cure it, but send it backwards—rather than its inevitable march towards, you know, uh, being alive without your soul—you know, demoralizing and terrible outcome. You know, I mean, it's a heroic, but yet billions of dollars have been spent, spent on drugs that have uh, have universally failed. So to think about these other treatments, and yeah, you know, this guy is doing it without. Dr. Phillips is doing it without any funding at all. He's just in his own time. At, at a great expense to the rest of his personal life, is just doing that.
0: Um, in the end, things are going to have to change because it sounds like we're not going to be able to, to sustain the way we're doing things. At some point, it, it falls over on itself, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, uh, and to be honest, Paul, well, I think it's fallen over already. When when right. you when you when your three year old's got a sore throat or an ear infection, something that is easily remedied with with uh, a medicinal thing but you can't get into your doctor for three weeks uh it's fallen it over yeah yeah so that's it, really it's at least on its at, knees it? yeah yeah
0: that's where we're at right now it's been a while since I've been to the doctor
1: yeah
0: okay you, you, you don't need to go because you' take some care of your health right? well I've had a few scrapes but yeah and and here's the thing Grant mm. I don't trust I don't trust them so much as I used to mm. that's a problem for me you know, um, that may be, have more impact on me than anyone else, but uh, I don't think I'm the the only one. So it would almost have to be an emergency.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: You know, and I'd probably dial one, one, one and go to the ED for that.
1: Yeah. And, for, and even then you're taking, you know, a, a few things into your own into other people's hands.
0: Yeah. No, I know. Okay. Any, anything else that, anything we've missed, anything you want to say before we sort of wind up the chat?
1: Um, Have we missed if, anything? If, I think if you want to say what is medicine, then yeah, what is medicine? There you go. What? Well, well, I think medicine, fitness is medicine. That things that effectively improve your health, um, whether you're sick or well, getting fit does. And I just want to talk about that because I think that I mentioned that earlier. We were the most active country in in the OECD. 20 yep. years ago, we're now at the bottom third. Um, one of the most profound things that came out of the Dunedin study people are familiar with that birth cohort in the early birth cohort of the early 70s in Dunedin, yeah, know about and that,
0: yeah.
1: when they were 12, so in the early 80s, um, it sounds like a horrible thing to do. And anyone who was a child then might remember the BEAT test, the multi stage fitness test. They made them do that, uh, which is a pretty awful thing to do, but it, it's a very good measure of cardiorespiratory fitness, and then they. Of course, we're not to have their own children. And when they were 12, they also measured them. And there's just some profound changes in one generation in how fit kids were. So they're about a quarter less fit. They dropped by 25% in their performance on that test. Um, and that's even allowing for the fact they're a bit fatter, so they, it's harder to run when you're fatter. Um huh. That's a profound thing to happen in a single generation. Uh and, and it wasn't like they were the 12 year olds in 1982 or 84 were working out they were um, living a life where they ranged around the neighborhood and uh, they're probably doing less sport well I'm probably in that kind of generation or close yeah. to it and yeah
0: we we were always active yeah always
1: and we've studied that quite a bit in our own work and we see this sort of um you sort of doing it in a daver and Attenborough's home range type thing right so uh, you know, how much does a kid 12 year old kid roam from their front gate? like how far do do cats go kind of yeah like yeah yes that. right but how far do 12 year olds go and you yeah. can do that over generations and um you know it's sort of gone from 8 to 10 K in our generation down to just a couple hundred yards um so that's an astonishing thing so you know fitness is medicine the second thing is uh, food is medicine um, and, and you only have to go to the supermarket and you know people sort of surreptitiously glance down at what people are putting in their trolleys and you go oh my God. Uh, and of course we've measured that much more carefully as have other researchers in New Zealand. So, you know, about 60% of what goes into our trolleys is called ultra processed food. So it's, you know, it was never clearly alive as a plant or an animal in any recent form. You know, a Dorito wasn't clearly corn. <laughs> on a any... Dorito tree. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. Um, and,
0: if you but go again, back. people need to take Don't they need to take responsibility? Have at least a bit of knowledge. It's pretty obvious what looks like food and and what isn't food, and just to to buy those or, or consume those products in an unthinking way is again. It's like come on, sharpen up your act. Take responsibility.
1: I agree, but there's also a, a, another perverse aspect on that: that our government actually supports the eating of that. So they're running this health star rating system that effectively endorses with stars things like Nutrigrain and uh, Up and Go. Oh right, You know, right. Yeah, uh, you know you th- 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 these are just uh, these are the worst of the ultra processed foods, and they get endorsed with health stars. So you get something like you know, whole milk is down at three and a half stars, or macadamia nuts gets half a star, uh, you know, bottled water because it. It has some salt added. Gets two and a half stars. Yeah, the whole system. The emperor's utterly naked, <laughs> and you've got a government that's just endorsing uh, an industry-led initiative that's you know, completely out of control. So yeah, we, we've we've got a long way to go on that stuff as well. Well,
0: maybe the, maybe governments. Well, our government should withdraw from any industry endorsing any industry thing at all, as a matter of policy.
1: Yeah. Well, of course, of course, you should because because it's. Uh, there's, there's, again, there's, like the pharmaceutical industry, there's you know, widespread evidence of conspiracy within the food industry to influence um, uh, these dietary guidelines and these sorts of things, and that's gone on for decades, and um, it still goes on in modern New Zealand.
0: Well, they put fluoride in the water. That's another thing we're big on. Our audience is on mm-hmm. fluoride in the water, and they've, you know, threatening councils now with big fines and all of that. Some even with personal liability. If, if the orders aren't carried out yet, you know, you can quite happily go in and buy, I don't know, 20 litres of Coke and wheel it out in your shopping trolley and drink it all that day. If you want, completely destroy your kid's teeth with uh, fruit juice in the bottle, all those things. But but there's no no one talks about that. Oh, they are prepared what, to uh, to mass medicate people who are healthy with the water supply. I
1: mean, it was a bizarre situation, isn't it? When, you know, the number one cost to the healthcare system for young people. Is anesthetizing, uh young children so they can get fillings done um, because of their, which are caused by poor diet. They're not caused by a lack of fluoride, uh, and we have absolutely no discussion about addressing that cause. What you, I mean, it's just as you say, it's that's the de- very definition of insanity. And it's interesting with Labor's policy around uh, free dental. It, it's stupid. What we need is is, is ways of of improving the food supply, that is the cause of poor dental health.
0: Yeah. 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 It's, uh, it's, it's mm.
1: all right. Um, yeah. Anything more? <laughs> no, I think that's it. Let's talk about vaping and devices as well. And then food is medicine and, and fitness is medicine. And we're, we're halfway there.
0: The thing about vaping, I know, because I have, I've been a smoker in my life and I've vaped in my life. I don't yeah. do any of it now. Mm. One thing that is true about vaping, because I know that there's there's been people who have said, that, you know, it's a sort of way of getting out of smoking the actual cigarettes, all that. But it's like having a cigarette going all the time. Mm. It's like an endless cigarette, the mm. endless
1: chain-smoking moment. So do you think you consume more nicotine when you vape, yeah. Paul, than when yeah. you smoked? Because
0: there's more more of a process lighting up a cigarette. Mm. So, you know, um, I probably when I smoked, and this is years ago now, I was probably up around a a packet of the of the tailor-made cigarettes, maybe a little more with the Rollies because you ended up on Rollies just for economy's sake. But you you had to go to an effort to create the cigarette and there weren't enough minutes in the hour to continuously make them. But with a um, vape, you can just have it going all the time and never stop. So, the only time you get a break from it is when you're asleep. Hmm. And I think that is um you know, hours sucking something way more with vaping than than smoking cigarettes, yeah, to
1: say, yeah, I mean I'd go down the path of the Aussies and just make it by prescription, yeah. Uh, and I yeah, can definitely help people stop smoking and smoking obviously, you know, kills half the people that do it, so that there's something. Yeah, I mean, I I guess,
0: you know, if you're paying, if if the tax is covering it all, if you're an adult and you really want to go on that, but particularly, though, for young people, you know. I mean, we used to get into all sorts of trouble smoking cigarettes, you know, detentions and, you know, threatened suspensions. I mean, they were pretty heavy on it back in the day.
1: Hmm.
0: Yeah. All right. Um, Okay, well, that's a good chat, and this conference should be really cool. So um, we'll be looking out for how... How that went, and have you got any sort of strategy or plan for you know communicating anything that comes out of that to try and you know do as what we've been talking about, sort of get it out, influence people?
1: Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna video every single presenter um, and get a high quality version of that, and that'll be up on um, I guess the Precure.com site and True Course, and people can engage with that. So um, or just follow us on social, and we'll start to get that out as well. But yeah, you know, I really want to share. Um yeah, we've got great New Zealanders um, and they're not in parliament, they're in medicine. Uh, and let's showcase some of that.
0: Okay. So it's this weekend, 15th and 16th at AUT Central Auckland, the Future of Medicine Conference. And uh, we've been talking with Professor Grant Schofield. Thank you, Grant. Really interesting. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, mate. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.